It's a search for our beginnings. The massive planet Jupiter holds the key to understanding the formation of our solar system, our planet, and life itself. NASA's Juno mission is unlocking the mysteries of the gas giant. Principal investigator Scott Bolton joins us with the revelations from Juno's journey to the fifth planet from the sun. That's next on this episode of Technology Today. We live with technology, science, engineering, and the results of innovative research every day. Now, let's understand it better. You're listening to the Technology Today podcast presented by Southwest Research Institute. Hello and welcome to Technology Today. I'm Lisa Benya. NASA's Juno mission launched in 2011 and entered Jupiter's orbit in 2016 to explore the planet. The spacecraft continues orbiting the gas giant, recently beginning its extended mission. Jupiter represents the very earliest part of the solar system and is key to understanding the formation of all planets and life on Earth. Juno is unlocking the mysteries of Jupiter and rewriting the textbooks on the fifth planet from the sun. Our guest today is a theoretical and experimental space physicist. He's Associate Vice President of the SWRI Space Science and Engineering Division and Juno Principal Investigator, Dr. Scott Bolton. Thank you for being here, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you and your audience. So the Juno mission is fascinating. The spacecraft launched 10 years ago. The data, the pictures are just incredible. You are heading up this mission. The primary mission has just ended and you recently started the extended mission, which will go to 2025. We have so much to discuss today. So let's get started with the gas giant Jupiter. Why the focus on Jupiter? How did this planet become the centerpiece of the Juno mission? So the reason Jupiter is so important is because it's the largest of all the planets. It's uh, it's more massive than all the planets put together. In fact, they would all fit inside Jupiter, basically. And so when you're trying to understand sort of the recipe of how you make a solar system and how did we get here on the Earth and what happened in the early solar system, Jupiter's really the first stop. And it's because it must have formed first. If it had formed after the solar system was already created in the other planets, it almost certainly would have disrupted everything. So most scientists believe it must have formed first. So that's the first step in planetary formation. After the sun formed, then the first planet must have been Jupiter. And so when you want to kind of investigate and understand where we came from, how planets are made, how other solar systems are made, when we look out uh, at exoplanets, planetary systems, we look and we basically compare it to Jupiter. And so Jupiter's the really giving us the clues. Juno launched in 2011 and jumped into Jupiter's orbit in 2016. You've been collecting data and images for five years now. What do you consider the most significant discoveries of Juno's primary mission? So that's a, a long list, but and I'll try to take them in the order that we re realized them when they were happening. So the first thing was, is Juno is really the first spacecraft and uh, to go over the poles of Jupiter. So it gave us the very first view of what Jupiter's North and South Pole looked like. And it didn't look like any like anything that anybody had expected. Um, we had seen Saturn's pole, um, which had sort of a hexagonal shape of a, of a line of um, atmospheric features, but it pretty much was pretty bland. Um, when we got over the pole of Jupiter, there were giant polar cyclones, in fact, on both poles. And they were all shaped like a, like a basically like a hurricane on the earth. They were very, a circular in, in shape like a like a vortex but there were different numbers there were five of them over one pole um, surrounding a center one uh, sort of in the shape of a pentagon uh, in the uh, evenly distributed five of them and then the other pole were eight surrounding uh, a central so that was more like and they were all evenly distributed sort of spaced out like they were sharing this space and so that was a real surprise that, the, and in fact, scientists are still working on theoretical ideas of how to explain how those polar cyclones are created, 
whether they're changing, how long do they live for, and they're gigantic. They're thousands of kilometers across. I mean, they're not quite as big as the Great Red Spot, but they're very significant storms. Um, then as we started to explore uh, Jupiter more and more, we uh, started looking at the deep atmosphere. So we have special instrumentation uh, called the microwave radiometers, and they actually can see through the cloud top. So when we look at Jupiter, um, the way we're used to looking at it, we look at it from, from an equatorial perspective, but you look at it with Hubble telescope or some of the previous spacecraft, and you see Jupiter as a series of stripes, we call them zones and belts, and those are actually jet streams going back and forth. They're a little bit different color. Some are a little browner or redder than other ones or, or whiter or more yellow, and that's probably driven by the chemistry, but they're actually winds that are moving back and forth in different directions and at different speeds. And then you have this giant great red spot, you know, just in the south of one uh, area. And of course, that is the longest living storm that we know of. Well, when we started to look at Jupiter deep down with, the, uh, with our microwave radiometers, we realized that those zones and belts are not just shallow features. They go pretty deep, three, 4,000 kilometers down into Jupiter. So these things are penetrating down. And then underneath that, Jupiter seems to be rotating around as a solid body. So that was a pretty major discovery. We're also, as we're looking at this deep atmosphere, we realized it wasn't well mixed. And that went against every theory that existed at the time. We had always thought, scientists always thought that once you drop below basically where the sunlight shined, you know, so if you, you had um, clouds that blocked it, uh, the weather was driven by sunlight like it is on the earth. And that once you got beneath, beneath that, or certainly beneath where water condenses and the water clouds were, were formed, that everything would be well mixed and stirred up inside. Um, but in fact, it isn't. We look down as deep as we can see, and we see that ammonia and water and other pockets are all highly variable, not only as a function of latitude, uh, which is very puzzling, but it also um, has time variability in it. It's changing. So things are happening. The weather layer on Jupiter goes much deeper than where the sun uh, can reach or where water condenses, which is largely believed to be the driver of weather. So we're still trying to figure out exactly how that works. One theory that uh, we've seen evidence of is, is that there may be uh, sort of mush balls, which is sort of a mushy-like hail that's that's uh, being formed in Jupiter's storms and dragging down ammonia and water down very, very deep, like hail does on the Earth. You'll, uh, you know, here in Texas, we get hail, and you often can see the hail uh, landing on the ground on your driveway or on your street, or if you're unfortunate, on your car. And of course the hail's ice and yet it's warmer than uh, when ice melts and yet the hail's still there. So like like at Earth or like our hailstorms, Jupiter has some kind of, but they're giant hail and they're mushy mixed with ammonia and water probably. And so we, this was a pretty major discovery and just the whole idea that Jupiter's deep atmosphere is highly variable. Um, another big discovery was we were searching for its core and we wanted to know whether Jupiter had a small compact core or none at all. And that was gonna help us constrain how Jupiter formed. Did, did, did rocks sort of collect first in the early solar system? And then when enough gravity was formed from the rocks, it sucked the rest of the gaseous atmosphere, which is the, mostly what Jupiter is made out of, or did it form more like we think a star forms where this you know, cloud just all of a sudden an instability gets created and the cloud forms uh, a star with no central core. And we were surprised again, um, because it, neither answer that we had set out to try to uh, discover, which was a small compact core or no compact core turned out to be true. Instead, Jupiter has a very large core without hard boundaries. It's not compact and it's sort of a fuzzy core. We call it a dilute core. And it doesn't fit any of the theories of how Jupiter formed or evolved. And so those 
theories are kind of going back to square one and saying, how do you make giant planets? What happened in the early solar system that formed Jupiter? One idea is maybe it got, it suffered from a very giant impact early on in its life, but we're still, still looking for evidence of whether that might be true. Models don't quite make that work. Um, another discovery had to do with its magnetic field we saw features in the magnetic field that were being distorted by the jet streams, the winds deep in Jupiter, which meant this was another piece of evidence that the jet streams and the winds in Jupiter were, were actually going quite deep. They were going deep enough um, so where the atmosphere was ionized or charged from, from pressure and temperature and the magnetic field was charging this atmosphere. And so the, so the winds were actually twisting the magnetic field around a little bit. And, and, um, and so that was a big surprise. And it, it really taught us that the atmosphere and the interior are very much in communication with each other and are affecting each other. And that sort of opens up a whole new field. Prior to Juno, um, scientists from these different fields often worked alone and in isolation, not thinking that one thing was was actually affecting the other. But on the Juno team, we've started to become much more interdisciplinary, where we realize the atmosphere, the interior, and the magnetic field, and even the magnetosphere are all uh, coupling to each other and affecting each other's uh, scientific outcomes. So, I mean, it's just a huge list of discoveries over five years. It's expected, you know, there's just so much data, so many images pouring in. What does it feel like to be on that team watching this in real time come in and just realizing that, you know, you mentioned surprise, being surprised quite a few times there. So what does it feel like to be on a team making these huge discoveries? And as we mentioned earlier, rewriting the textbooks on Jupiter. Well, I think we all feel really fortunate and honored to be part of something that's, you know, sort of revolutionary in our uh, revolutionizing our understanding of the solar system and the cos cosmos. Um, I think it's also a very humbling experience. You know, you set out to to achieve certain science objectives, and you lay out what you expect and what your uh, certain questions you're hoping to answer. And usually, you're lucky, uh, or you stumble into maybe one or two things where, you know, your ideas uh, are shown to be wrong, and the and the science community has to kind of go back to square one. I think that. It's the first time for most of us where we we're having that happen so often, and it's it's across the board of all of our scientific disciplines. I mean, I only touched on a few, but people that study the magnetosphere, people that study the magnetic field, the interior, the atmosphere, planet formation, um, atmospheric dynamics, all of those are sort of you know it's a very humbling experience to realize everything you've been. <laughs> spending your time and reading about in books um, needs to be rewritten. And um, and so it's a lesson, but it's also incredibly exciting and a privilege uh, to be part of something that's so revolutionary. How did you propel the spacecraft into orbit around this massive planet? How do you achieve that? So uh, initially you start off with a, a, a rocket that launches you from the Earth. And that rocket has a number of stages to it, and your spacecraft is, is tucked away inside at the top. And um, as the stages happen, the first you get into Earth orbit, and then that uh, another rocket fires you into the direction that you um, that trajectory engineers, which are you know orbital dynamicists, and they're an amazing field by itself, um, have actually calculated and realized how you literally drive to Jupiter, right? It's it's really um, amazing to me that we understand how to navigate uh, the planets in our solar system. I'm in awe of the engineers that, that calculate that. They're using Kepler's laws and basic physics, but it's amazing that it all works and they can do these fine tunings. So you get launched into a direction that, you're, that, 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 that is all calculated ahead of time, and you actually 
didn't have a, we didn't have enough energy to get there. We're not the first that have used this trick. We use a gravity assist. So we go around the sun. And while we go around the sun, we reach out to maybe the, near the orbit of Mars or the asteroid belt and then come back to the Earth. And the Earth kind of gives us a, an extra boost, like a slingshot. And then you get going even faster uh, uh, relative to the, to the sun. And so then you your orbit moves out even further than Mars or Jupiter because you've gotten almost like another rocket boost from the Earth. You literally get in close to the Earth and Earth slows down slightly and transfers some angular momentum to the spacecraft. And uh, that lets you reach out to Jupiter's orbit. Now, the next trick is once you're at an orbit that's going to reach to the distance that Jupiter is from the sun, everything has to be timed. So when you reach that distance, uh, you're actually next to Jupiter. So that's all calculated ahead of time. And then when you get to that place where you're gonna be close to Jupiter, you fire another rocket that you're carrying on board, uh, a main engine, and that essentially slows you down. Because if you, if you don't fire that rocket, you're just gonna fly right past Jupiter. And so you slow down, and then Jupiter's gravity field grabs you, and then you're in orbit around Jupiter. And so that's the whole trick. And it's very, um, an, it's a very nail-biting experience because if that rocket motor, when you're re, when you're just at Jupiter, doesn't fire at just the right time for the right duration and in the exact right direction, um, then you lose the entire mission. You don't either you don't go into orbit at Jupiter or something could happen where you just explode and that's the end of the mission. So it's a it's a very tense moment, just like the launches. If the rocket goes wrong at the launch pad, uh, you'll lose everything. But at Jupiter, you've already spent so many years waiting to get there. Um, the anticipation is there mixed with the tension. But it's also very exciting living on the edge. Yeah, so carefully orchestrated. When you were saying, you know, they they know the route around our planets and to get you there, all I could think of was this is so way beyond like punching in your destination in Google Maps. This is like next level, just having a complete knowledge of everything they're going to encounter along the way. So just fascinating. Um, so Juno orbited Jupiter 34 times. Why this precise number and what did each orbit accomplish? So the, we were basically designed to map out the planet for our science objectives. We wanted to be able to understand the gravity field of Jupiter, the magnetic field of Jupiter and the atmosphere and, uh, and look at the magnetosphere. And to do that, You'd like to map out the planet, map out the environment around it. It's sort of like if you wanted to map out the Earth, if you only went over uh, Texas or went over Texas and then Hawaii, you wouldn't get a very good feel for how everything uh, varied. You have to go over every place, sort of every so many degrees longitude. And so that's what the mapping was. Each orbit was designed to go over a specific longitude of Jupiter close in. Our orbit is elliptical. And so one part of it, we go very, very close to Jupiter, only 5,000 kilometers above the cloud tops. And so that's made uh, designed so that it goes over a certain longitude. And then the next one goes over a longitude, maybe 180 degrees away from that. And then each one is spaced out. And so what we did was we made a map that was 16 orbits uh, around Jupiter um, and of course, it's 360 degrees around, so you, you can uh, do the math and see that we've spaced it out. And then the next um, set of orbits went in between those longitudes. And so by the time you had 32 orbits, you had basically got a complete map of Jupiter um, you know, that was uh, evenly spaced in longitude. And then we had two spare orbits, just in case something went wrong, we could make up one of those longitude or pieces of the map. We didn't want any gaps in the map. And during the time, we did have one uh, orbit where the spacecraft went into a safe mode, and so we didn't get data. And so we needed basically 33 to complete our map uh, of 32 orbits. And then we still had the one spare. And, you know, you, you talk about how everything has to be so carefully planned out for the navigation, and it does. It's really amazing. 
but the navigation is done in, a, in, in some ways the same way we've done for centuries. So ships, when they were discovering America and things like that, would look at the stars to navigate with. And that's exactly how spacecraft work, is they have cameras, special cameras that are low light cameras that look up and look at the stars and they make a map of the stars and then compare it to uh, a map that's in their computer inside the spacecraft. And of course we have them on the earth as well for the uh, operation engineers. And we compare and that's how the spacecraft knows where it is. It takes pictures of the stars. So we're literally navigating by starlight. I love thinking about that. You know, as you said, when um, the explorers were discovering new lands using the same method, stars, amazing. So, you know, we hear a lot about Jupiter's moons. Jupiter has 79 known moons, 53 named, 26 awaiting official names. Io, Ganymede, Europa, and Callisto are the planet's four largest moons, known as the Galilean satellites. What has Juno revealed about Jupiter's moons? So, you know, it wasn't in our original plan, but since we're, of course, orbiting uh, Jupiter, and because we had a polar orbit, we were going above and below the moons. Um, and nobody had seen that before because previous NASA spacecraft had always stayed near the equator and could only look just like at Jupiter, you would look at a side shot, basically the same view you'd get from the Earth. Um, so when we went over the poles, we took uh, the cameras and pointed them at these satellites. Uh, we managed to get pictures of Ganymede and uh, Io from above and on Io, which is the most volcanic body in the entire solar system, we saw what the volcanoes looked like at the poles of Io for the first time. Uh, we also made maps of Ganymede. You have a couple of missions that are actually following Juno that are going to go, uh, be launched soon and they're going to explore those two bodies. One by the European Space Agency named JUICE is going to explore Ganymede and NASA's own Europa Clipper mission is going to uh, also uh, be launched in a few years and, and be exploring Europa. So we got the first view of what those moons look like from the poles. And in our extended mission, um, we actually are going to get really close to those moons. So we already, um, over this last summer, flew by Ganymede um, very close, just about a thousand kilometers or so above uh, Ganymede's surface. And we got uh, incredible images and we compare that also to more distant shots where we're seeing the poles and we learn about the composition, uh, the ice shell, how Ganymede has its own magnetic field. So we explore that a little bit. We do a radio occultation to understand its atmosphere. And we look at the whole interaction of Ganymede, the moon, with the magnetosphere. Each of these moons of Jupiter um, affect Jupiter's magnetosphere and actually show up when you look at Jupiter's aurora. Um, because the, there's like an umbilical cord moving along the magnetic field that comes out of Jupiter that threads through these Galilean satellites. And so you can see a little footprint lit up and you can see Ganymede's footprint, Europa and Io. And in fact, Io, because of its volcanoes, um, creates a footprint that goes, you know, a fair fraction of a way around Jupiter because of all the volcanic debris that sort of trails behind Io also creates aurora for us. Um, so in our extended mission, uh, still coming up uh, sometime next year, we'll go by really close to Europa, only about 350 kilometers away from its surface. So we'll We'll see new things with Europa that we're very excited about. And then we have two flybys of Io that are 1,500 kilometers. And, the, and that'll tell us about its interior, whether the magma ocean is global or just in little pockets. Um, these moons have, have oceans. The Ganymede has an ocean underneath its ice, and Europa uh, has, certainly has an ocean underneath its ice. And so uh, we're going to be exploring how those oceans work. Um, maybe are there are there pieces of them that are closer to the surface and what is the ice shell around these. We have some special instruments that the future missions don't have. In particular, one of them is this microwave radiometer, which we use to look, and it was designed to actually look deep into Jupiter's atmosphere. When we point that at, at Ganymede or Europa's ice shell or even Io's, we'll make a map of that ice that tells us something about how its composition and structural 
properties change across um, the, the moon's globe and it may tell us where parts of the ice are, are shallow or in communication with the ocean underneath. Um, it's going to tell us a lot, and we don't have the we don't have that data even on these future missions. We don't have anything exactly like that. So we're working with those teams to help complement them, and get them uh, more prepared for their own uh, investigation. And of course, once they get their data, we'll go back and we'll use Juno data uh, at these moons to try to make a a bigger picture, tell us more about the moons themselves. So one other well-known feature of the planet um, is the giant red spot. What have you learned about this giant storm? So the giant red spot is a, is a great example of uh, something that's very well known, but r reasonably poorly understood. <laughs> and we know that it's lasted a long time. And we're lucky to have Juno there right now studying it because it's going through a period of change. We see it, it appears to be shrinking. There's some debate whether the storm itself is getting smaller or if the top layer is getting covered by other clouds and it just appears to be smaller. And so we're, we're studying that, watching those changes and certainly learning about the dynamics of the great red spot. But there's two pieces of things that we really look that are of particular interest to us. And that is one with the microwave radiometer, we can actually look underneath the layers of the great red spot and see how deep it goes. And it looks like it goes pretty deep, but we're still looking at the details of that and modeling it, but it's going to um, kind of provide us uh, new information and new models of how the great red spot works. That's one thing that Juno is is working on and, and, and doing. Um, another is we have um, other techniques that we can look at how the great red spot uh, affects Jupiter's gravity field or magnetic field. And so that tells us also something about it, you know, its depth and and how it's structured and how much mass is tied to that storm? Are there other storms that, like that? And so we're kind of learning about the great red spot, which is sort of the chief storm there at Jupiter, but also comparing it to the other types of storms and vortices that we see all across. I mean, one of the amazing discoveries of Juno is uh, how incredibly beautiful Jupiter is, that that when you really get up close and you get these uh, these camera shots, um, you see it's like a palette, like a Van Gogh painting. Um, and these storms are swirling around in different colors. And it's um, very unique in the solar system in that it's it's created, it, it's such a natural beauty. We have a website where we put this data up for, uh, for anybody to process. And the citizen scientists go on and make the pictures. But I would say there's almost an equal number of artists just inspired and they're making art pictures out of uh, out of Juno's uh, images of Jupiter. And so, um, and the great red spot is right in the middle of that because it's an incredibly beautiful storm. We even see little clouds at the very tops of it that we think are, must be where the precipitation or, um, you know, ammonia ice must be forming. And you can, and that's something that Juno found all over Jupiter, that there's these high level clouds. We can almost see clouds at different levels. And some of them are must be made of ice and other ones are made of liquid or gas or a mixture. Yeah. So since you mentioned it, let's talk about the pioneering citizen science campaign that your team created. So Juno is the first NASA mission to have a dedicated camera for the public. And as you said, citizen scientists take the Juno cam images and upgrade them, adding color and highlighting the planet's beauty, as you said, the unique features. So the campaign also invites input from amateur astronomers. How does this open platform enhance the Juno mission? So um, first, the citizen scientists that work with the, the images that we take, they're not just changing the color, they're actually producing the image itself, just like scientists would. We, we load up the raw data, which doesn't look anything like an image. It's digital and uh, we're spinning and so the image uh, data itself has to be, you know, played with um, on the computer and organized and 
and then you you make an image and then you colorize it and we have different four different filters and so they get to choose that and that helps uh, in scientifically as well as artistically and then we have this big program for amateur astronomers to look at Jupiter at the same time that we're flying by. We publish when we're going to fly by it and which longitudes we're going to see. And they train not uh, even professional astronomers using Hubble telescope and special facilities all across the, uh, the Earth with infrared and different uh, wavelengths will look. But then the amateurs also help us because they get more coverage than the professional ones. There's only a few big telescopes that that can be trained on Jupiter at any given time. And uh, so the amateurs fill in the blank and tell and give us more constant coverage. And so one of the direct links is is when we see something strange or new in the radio or in the microwave or even in our image, we get the context from the amateur community because they get the picture and they watch um, you know, how Jupiter's atmosphere is evolving. Sometimes they warn us about stuff and they say, hey, a big change has occurred here. We had something that happened not too long ago that was called Clyde Spot, where an amateur named Clyde uh, in South Africa was taking an image of Jupiter and saw a big white storm forming just south and a little bit to the right or, or east of the Great Red Spot. And so we put out an alert and it turned out the next day we were flying right over that. And so we got a close-up picture of Clyde's spot. And then um, and we've watched this evolve. This was a giant storm that formed uh, very quickly. And then we've watched it evolve. And so the amateur community, as well as the professional community, are playing a big role in connecting to us and expanding our, our science that we can do. Sometimes with the citizen scientists, we actually invite, they're, they're doing such important stuff, we invite them into our own publications. And they become part of the team, literally. I mean, how exciting for them and how exciting for Clyde. Um, so all the amateur astronomers out there can shoot for the stars, so to speak, and can aim to become Clydes and, and, and you know, put their uh, information out there. And I just want to put the website out. Also, um, you can see the um, citizen scientists work at missionjuno.swri.edu forward slash junocam. Of course, we'll have this web address on our episode 35 page. Really cool work. So I, right now, I want to play a unique chorus of sounds for our listeners, sounds created with Juno data. So let's hear it. interesting sounds we just heard. Will you explain um, what we just heard? Sure. So you're actually listening to a radio. Uh, so we, we fly a radio. We have a plasma wave and radio uh, experiment on, on Juno, which is literally an antenna, uh, like the old kind of antennas that used to be on TVs, just a couple of wires. And it measures um, radio emission that's uh, coming from Jupiter's magnetosphere generally. And this one was, was connected to the Aurora. And so what we're doing is we're getting um, radio emission that is at a certain frequency and the human ear can hear um, frequencies, sound frequencies that are about, speakers are maybe go from 20 to 20,000 Hertz in frequency. And so these radio emissions are basically converted down um, through a mathematical routine to get them to within the right frequency that you could hear with our with the human ear. And then you're literally playing it. Um, now, it is, it, it's not exactly sound because in order for a sound to, uh, wave to work, you have to have air. And there's no air out there in space. It's a vacuum. Of course, there's air inside Jupiter's uh, atmosphere, but this is outside in, in uh, the outside the atmosphere in the magnetosphere. So there's no air out there. But you do get radio. And in the same way that the radio works in your car or at home, it's uh, coming in at a certain frequency, and then the uh, radio electronics converts that 
uh, into a sound that you can hear and plays through your speakers. And so they're changing the frequencies. Ours are doing the same thing. We're basically taking the radio. So this is what you would hear if you flew a radio at Jupiter. Um, and literally, that's what we're doing. And so we're actually listening to the sounds that, uh, that Jupiter's magnetosphere makes, um, but they're really radio frequencies that are converted into uh, sound waves. So the sounds of Jupiter are now incorporated in songs. Uh, you have worked with a long list of artists. Um, where can we find this music? Who are these artists? So there's a wide uh, array of artists that uh, have incorporated these sounds, everything from country music to jazz to uh, hip hop uh, to rock and roll to, um, you know, new age music. And some of them were collected by Apple Music and put out on a special website dedicated to Juno. And you can look up, uh, you know, an Apple Music, uh, Jupiter and Juno, and you'll find a, a large collection of sounds. Others you can find um, uh, where they, you know, were published by the artists themselves. So in the country arena, um, Brad Paisley um, did a, a song that incorporated these sounds called Sister. And then uh, Little Big Town, I worked with them where it was a tribute to Elton John's Rocket Man. Um, and we put together um, a, a great version of, of Rocket Man that was largely driven by the percussion, uh, which was really the beat and rhythm that was driven by Juno sounds that I put into the mix and they worked with. Um, and then Vangelis, the composer who did Chariots of Fire and Blade Runner and a bunch of other movies, he's worked on a number of, of pieces of music using the sounds themselves. Um, so did Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. Uh, I did a video with him that Apple also uh, produced that was on the mixture of art and science and how Juno works. And the score to it was put together by Trent and uh, he incorporated these sounds that you're listening to. Um, the hip hop band Wu-Tang Clan, uh, one of their artists uh, that is a member of the band named Jizza, is a very uh, close friend of mine and works with um, uh, science and loves science and lectures on it. He also used um, these sounds and the list goes on and on. Uh, Herbie Hancock, I mean, there's just all kinds of different um, musicians that have incorporated these sounds. Yeah, so the sounds of Jupiter are versatile and can be used in so many different kinds of music. I think that's really neat. And I encourage our listeners to go out there and, and search for these tunes and uh, listen to Jupiter Incorporated in music. Listen to the sounds of Jupiter Incorporated in music. How cool is that? So uh, I want to talk about your team and about the um, instrumentation you use. All of these findings are possible because of your talented team working with the tremendous instrumentation aboard the spacecraft, the solar-powered spacecraft itself is an engineering wonder designed to hold up to Jupiter's hostile environment. Tell us about the spacecraft. You know, you mentioned the microwave radiometer quite a bit, um, but tell us more about these instruments and also its special radiation vault. So we have a, a lot of science instruments or the, uh, as part of the payload on Juno. Um, we have um, a visible light camera, which we call Juno Cam, and that's of course the one dedicated to the to the public. And then we have uh, an ultraviolet spectrometer or spe uh, spectrograph from and an imager um, that was made by Southwest Research Institute. Um, we have a um, an infrared. Uh, imager and spectrometer that was made uh, by the Italian Space Agency and contributed to NASA as part of the mission. Um, then you have an array of, uh, of fields and particles instruments. Uh, uh, very important to that is the magnetometer, which maps out the magnetic field that was made by Goddard Space Flight Center. And there's actually two magnetometers, one that's they're sitting on the end of a solar array, one of the solar array booms, and it's it, there's one outside, one on the inside, so that you can understand and remove this, the uh, magnetic field that the spacecraft has and only measure Jupiter. And that's co-located with four visible light cameras made by the tech Danish Technical University. Um, 
in order to locate exactly if the if the solar array were to bend a little bit, we want to know exactly where that magnetometer is. And so these are special cameras. They're actually star cameras that look out and, and look at the stars and figure out exactly where the magnetic sensors are in space. Um, and then we have an array of, of instruments to study the aurora. We have a plasma instrument made by Southwest Research Institute. Uh, energetic particle instrument made by Applied Physics Lab, and the plasma wave and radio emission that we make the sounds from is at, out of the uh, University of Iowa. And then we have the gravity field, uh, which is radio science, and so we use sort of the communication system, and that's a, a dual frequency. One part of it is the high-gain antenna, which is used for communications, is made at JPL, and we call that X-band. And it and uh, and then we have an, a, a something contributed by the Italian Space Agency that is the Ka band, so another frequency. You use both of those frequencies so you can remove the noise. And, and in fact, we're the first spacecraft to use dual frequency. Cassini launched with two of them, but one of them failed. So we're the first ones to really have one that works in both frequencies, and it helps you get the radio science even more precise. Which of course is what we're using to understand uh, Jupiter's core. And then finally, we have a new kind of instrument that's never, that was literally invented for Juno, and it's called the microwave radiometer. And it's actually six instruments hiding as one. There's six separate antennas um, and receivers that are looking at radio wavelengths between one and 50 centimeters. And so each wavelength sees into Jupiter at a different depth. It's almost like radar, but it's passive. There's no bounce. It's not, it's not broadcasting a signal. It's just listening to to Jupiter and if it's a long wavelength it's listening deep from deeper down and if it's a, a short wavelength it's looking sort of at the top part of the atmosphere and that instrument was um, built at JPL uh, and uh, and that is uh, there's a lot of interest in that instrument because it was brand new no nobody had ever used anything like that on a planetary mission and it's so revolutionary that my guess is that it'll be used to study the other giant planets in the future. So the Juno team has started the extended mission. Where is Juno right now? What can we expect during this extended mission? And what happens to the Juno spacecraft in 2025 once the extended mission is over? So the extended mission started August 1st and um, and what's happening is, is, is even though we have some fuel on board and some, you know, little rocket motor, so to speak, um, we're no match for Jupiter's immense gravity field. And so as we get so close that Jupiter pulls us around and, and twists our orbit, and so it keeps twisting it sort of so that the place that we crossed Jupiter started off near the equator, and it's slowly moving more and more northward. And it's because Jupiter's literally twisting our orbit around. And uh, what that does is it has a benefit to us in the extended mission because it means that, that that orbit being twisted around allows us to go very close to the satellites and it allows us to explore Jupiter's rings really close. And we get close-ups of the Northern Hemisphere and the North Pole and uh, more than we did during the primary mission. And all of those are science objectives that are highlighted in our extended mission, some of them brand new, like the study of the satellites or the ring system is the ring system of Jupiter is virtually unexplored. And, uh, and of course, a lot of the puzzles and discoveries we made were in the northern hemisphere. And so we're going to get up close and understand, you know, what happens in Jupiter's atmosphere where the... Um, where the atmosphere changes from these stripes, the zones and belts to somehow forming um, the polar cyclones. And also we'll get more gravity and magnetic field data. We'll study this interaction of the deep atmosphere and the magnetic field and the interior and, and constrain the core more and more. So that's what's coming up in the extended mission. Now, at the end, um, you know, we, we, we've postulated that we have enough fuel to get all the way to the end and maybe even have a little bit more. And the solar arrays, which were the first solar powered mission to be uh, to reach Jupiter's distance, um, they will slowly degrade from radiation, but it looks as if they're doing pretty well right now. They, um, they have special cover glass on them that protects them from the radiation, and they're pumping out uh, 
energy that is uh, more than we need at the moment. And so there's a little bit of uh, cushion there uh, or margin as uh, the solar rays start to produce less. The thing that's probably most um, dangerous for us is Jupiter's radiation. And as this orbit twists around, we go through more and more harsh radiation or regions of harsh radiation. It gets harsher and harsher. Each time we go by, we get another dose of radiation and even stronger dose each orbit practically. And eventually the radiation will penetrate into our electronics and probably cause failures, uh, maybe slowly, but eventually uh, that, will, that may kill uh, Juno. And you mentioned the radiation vault. We were the first ones to design something like that because we had to. We were the first, you know, mission that was actually looking at trying to go into, you know, the harshest radiation environment in the entire solar system. And so we took a very novel approach and we built a vault uh, made out of titanium. So we, in the middle of the spacecraft, we have basically walls of titanium and their they their their mass is like 200 kilograms altogether and then inside that vault are all the sensitive electronics and even with all that shielding um some radiation is going to get through i mean that it was designed to protect us to last through the prime mission with some margin and of course we passed that prime mission uh, mark on july 31st of this summer 2021 and we see we see no real negative effects so we're built like an armored tank and, and the shields are still holding. And so that's very positive. But someday those shields are going to fail, just like on Star Trek. <laughs> okay, so um, Juno has done its job. It's con It continues to do its job, built like an armored tank. But one day it is going to succumb to the forces of Jupiter. And, um, you know, it's kind of sad, huh, to think about that. But... It's provided so much data and good information that, um, you know, so got to think of the good times, right, with Juno? <laughs> well, and you, and you couldn't learn what we wanted to learn about Jupiter and our early solar system without going in really close. And so that was really the novel uh, approach and concept of Juno was figure out a way to get a data that NASA couldn't get up till now. So I wanted to touch on the Lucy mission just a bit. Um, a new Southwest Research Institute-led mission is set for launch in October. That's the Lucy mission. It will begin a 4 billion mile journey to explore Jupiter's Trojan asteroids. And what an elite club you are in overseeing a space mission. I know um, part of your job here at the Institute is to bring new missions to fruition. Um, did you have any um, collaboration with Lucy and the Lucy team and any words of wisdom for this team as they begin their journey? Uh, yeah, so early on, I did work with the Lucy team and help put together, um, you know, some of the structure and partnerships that, that uh, went into really developing and building and implementing Lucy. You know, we, uh, Southwest Research Institute, of course, is the leader of it. And I worked with, with uh, the leaders at, uh, on Lucy to put together that and then combine them with uh, Lockheed Martin, who ended up building the spacecraft and also Goddard Space Flight Center, which is a NASA center um, to help manage the mission and oversee it. And that went into basically uh, the whole proposal architecture and how Juno or how Lucy would be implemented and designed. And so I was very happy that they uh, took the reins and ran with them um, and were able to put together such an incredible concept and all the great engineering and design that they put together to, to win that mission and actually successfully build it uh, on cost and on schedule, which is a big challenge. And so no doubt all of their partnerships under Southwest Research Institute's leadership was able to pull that together and, and, um, and have a great success story. Now they're approaching launch and, um, you know, it's a very tense moment. It's also a very exciting moment. Um, it's probably one of the most exciting times of the, of the entire mission, but also one of the most tense. And so my advice to them is, you know, enjoy that moment and try to, you know, uh, make sure that you don't let the, the tenseness of, of the fact that the launch is so high risk uh, get in the way of enjoying the moment. Um, 
and and you know be careful and of course uh, but really enjoy the fact that you're finally launching and getting on your way and then comes this long trajectory to get out to where you're going and you have to be patient and uh, in the space program patience is a virtue you you watch uh, you know entire generation or your kids grow up while you're waiting to get out to your target they're going out to a very far target the uh, trojans are around jupiter which are um, you know asteroids that are orbiting near jupiter's orbit so it takes a long time to get out there and um, in the meantime the, the excitement will just continue to build and then when you arrive another really exciting time. They don't have to get into orbit like we did with a Jupiter orbit insertion, but it's going to be a really exciting time. And be prepared for the ideas that you had at the time you formulated the mission to actually change. And that data you're going to get is going to change your theories and change your concepts of how the universe works, how the solar system works. And, um, that's part of the incredible excitement. So I wish them all great luck and fortune, and uh, and I hope they really enjoy the journey that they're about to embark upon. Enjoy the mission, be patient, and get ready for changes in your plan. Great advice. Um, what do you hope our listeners take away today? What is Jupiter teaching us about planetary science, about life? Well, it's, it's teaching us about our origin and where we came from and, and how pieces of the puzzle come together to tell a bigger story. And that's a very important lesson for all of our listeners to get is, is that, you know, you try not to answer every question at once. You have to be patient. Uh, and science works by gathering data and making progress, sometimes uh, seemingly too slow. You know, you're, you have to be patient to realize that you're getting a piece of the puzzle and that's got to go into that uh, next bigger puzzle or help you with a theory. Um, but also reach out and never, never really uh, give up. If you've got something that you, that you believe in, um, keep working at it, work with others, uh, complement your expertise. If you're um, great at one kind of physics, you got to mix with the uh, other kinds of scientists, you got to mix with the people of all fields. Um, try to be creative, innovative, mix with artists, mix with people that think differently than you, and, uh, and you can accomplish great things and, um, and never lose sight of the big picture because that's also really important to realize that um, your, your ideas and your perspectives um, can change. And while it's natural for us to resist those, it's also important for us to welcome those new revelations because that's what, in the end, leads to innovation and, uh, and a greater understanding. Yeah, just wonderful advice for life in general. And you know, you've been a standout example of all of it throughout the Juno mission. What an amazing discussion today, Scott. Thank you for spending time with us and giving us this fascinating insight on Jupiter and Juno. And before we go, I want to say congratulations on your recent Space Pioneer Award from the National Space Society, recognizing your accomplishments on Juno and your work to open the space frontier, one of many awards you have received for your work. It's been a joy speaking with you today. Thank you so much for having me and, uh, and sharing the excitement of the space program with your listeners. And thank you to our listeners for learning along with us today. You can hear all of our Technology Today episodes and see photos and complete transcripts at podcast.swri.org. Remember to share our podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Want to see what else we're up to? Connect with Southwest Research Institute on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Check out the Technology Today magazine at technologytoday.swri.org. And now is a great time to become an SWRI problem solver. Visit our career page at swri.jobs. Ian McKinney and Brian Ortiz are the podcast audio engineers and editors. I am producer and host, Lisa Pena. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.